You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. A little after nightfall, I was sent by General Lee upon an errand to A.P. Hill, and returning sometime later with information of matters on our right, I found General Jackson retired to rest, and General Lee sleeping at the foot of a tree covered with his army cloak. As I aroused the sleeper, he slowly sat up on the ground and said, Ah, Captain, you have returned, have you? Come here and tell me what you have learned on our right. Laying his hand on me, he drew me down by his side, and passing his arm around my shoulder, drew me near to him in a fatherly way that told of his warm and kindly heart. When I had related such information as I had secured for him, he thanked me for accomplishing his commission, and then said he regretted that the young men about General Jackson had not relieved him of annoyance by finding a battery of the enemy which had harassed our advance, adding that young men of that day were not equal to what they had been when he was a young man. And as he laughed heartily through the stillness of the night, I went off to make a bed of my saddle blanket, with my head in my saddle, near my horse's feet, and was soon wrapped in the heavy slumber of a wearied soldier. Sometime after midnight, I was awakened by the chill of the early morning hours, and turning over, caught a glimpse of a little flame on the slope above me, and sitting up to see what it meant, I saw, bending over a scant fire of twigs, two men seated on old cracker boxes and warming their hands over the little fire. I had to rub my eyes and collect my wits to recognize the figures of Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson. Lieutenant James P. Smith, Staff, Lieutenant General Thomas J. Jackson. y'all, it's New Year's Eve Eve, and perhaps like us, you've also had a lot going on during the holidays. But despite all that's going on, we wanted to be sure to get an episode out to y'all this weekend. Right. Uh, It will be a shortish episode, though, so we'll just throw that disclaimer out there right now. But we thought you guys would like to have a short show rather than no show at all, especially since the subject of this episode is is one of the most famous incidents that occurred during the Battle of Chancellorsville. Exactly. 
So as y'all recall, when we left off last time, it was Friday, May 1st, 1863, and in the tangle of the wilderness, federal columns advancing down roads from Chancellorsville had clashed with Confederate forces moving up those same roads toward Chancellorsville. This development had taken the federal commander Joseph Hooker by surprise, and he ended up calling off the advance and ordering his troops to fall back to Chancellorsville, where they would assume a defensive position. That evening, Joe Hooker was still confident that his plan was working. In fact, he assured his subordinates that he had Lee just where he wanted him. If Lee wanted to come out from his Fredericksburg defenses and be the aggressor, then that was fine with Hooker. Hooker would assume a defensive position at Chancellorsville, and Lee would be the one who would have to maneuver an attack through the almost impassable woods. Hooker was certain it would be virtually impossible for the rebels to coordinate an attack in the wilderness or to move far away from the principal road network, of which Hooker controlled the hub at Chancellorsville. But although Hooker, on the night of May 1st, may have still been confident that his plan was working. The truth was that by assuming a defensive position at Chancellorsville, he was surrendering the initiative to Robert E. Lee. And that very evening, not even a mile and a half east of Chancellorsville, Lee and Stonewall Jackson began to plan what to do with the initiative that Mr. F.J. Hooker had surrendered to them. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change. But it's also a story about people, populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. 
Robert E. Lee had left most of the action on May 1st in Stonewall Jackson's capable hands. Lee himself had lingered at Fredericksburg to make sure the Federals there were not making any aggressive moves. Then he set out to join Jackson. Lee watched the last of the combat on the turnpike and reconnoitered the ground north of the pike. Then he started moving down the furnace road to his left. What Lee discovered is that Hooker held a pretty strong defensive position. The Yankees here were defending the highest ground in the area, and their front was protected by the wilderness's tangled mass of woods, dense underbrush, streams, and swampy ground. Stonewall Jackson, returning from Catherine's Furnace after scouting the Union Center and finding the same formidable enemy defenses, met Lee at the intersection of the Plank Road and Furnace Road, where they fell into conversation. But a Yankee sharpshooter was harassing a nearby rebel battery, and the two generals moved off to a more sheltered spot in a nearby stand of cedars, where they sat themselves on the trunk of a fallen tree and continued their discussion. Much has been written about the celebrated collaboration of Lee and Jackson, Lee later hailed Jackson as the perfect subordinate, saying, quote, I have but to show him my design, and I know that if it can be done, it will be done. End quote. But that synergy of minds wasn't apparent when the two generals met on the evening of May 1st. Despite the fact a strong enemy force had crossed the Rappahannock just below Fredericksburg, Lee was convinced Hooker's main effort was here on the Chancellorsville front west of Fredericksburg, and so it was here the Confederates needed to find a way to strike him and drive him back. Jackson begged to differ. That day he had barely pressured the Federals when they unaccountably fell back, avoiding a major showdown. And so, as far as Stonewall was concerned, this Federal maneuvering on the Chancellorsville front was another one of Hooker's feints, and he fully expected the Yankees here would be gone come morning, having withdrawn back across the river. Lee, however, persuaded Stonewall to help him make plans in case the enemy did stay and fight here at Chancellorsville. Comparing notes, Lee said he already knew that the Federals had secured their left flank along the Rappahannock, so attacking there would be impossible. Jackson said that an attack along the center would be difficult, especially since the Yankees had spent the last few hours fortifying their position. In that light, the Union right sounded like the only possible option. It was at this point that Confederate Cavalry Commander Jeb Stuart rode up. He brought with him a piece of information that confirmed Lee and Jackson's thinking about the Federal right because Stuart told them that the enemy's right flank was stretched out to the west along the Orange Turnpike, but was anchored on nothing at its far end. In other words, the Federal right flank was up in the air. With Stuart's news, the Federal's right flank became a very tempting target, but Lee knew he needed more information. Specifically, he needed to know if there was a way to get a sizable Confederate force around to the west, through the wilderness, to strike Hooker in the flank. Surprisingly, although the rebel army had wintered in the region and had fortified the line of the Rappahannock around Fredericksburg, they had only a sketchy knowledge of the roads in the wilderness. 
As Robert E. Lee had cavalrymen and staff officers scour the dark woods for a route that would get troops into position to strike Hooker's vulnerable flank, Lee and Jackson both felt the tug of fatigue. The details of a plan of attack would have to wait until someone returned and reported that a way had been found to get infantry and artillery around to the west. And so in the meantime, Lee covered himself with his overcoat and stretched out for a nap on a saddle blanket. Nearby, Stonewall lay on the bare earth beneath a tree. A staff officer later covered him with a cape. Jackson awoke two hours later, no doubt feeling chilled from the damp ground. He walked over to a nearby campfire that staff members had built and sat on a cracker box that had been left behind by the enemy. His chaplain, Reverend Beverly Tucker Lacey, sat down beside him. Lacey had been a local minister and had preached throughout the wilderness. Jackson had earlier quizzed the reverend about roads through the area, but any of the routes Lacey had suggested would likely bring the Confederate flanking force too close to federal pickets, which would ruin any chance Stonewall had at surprise. Was there really no way, Jackson asked the chaplain, that troops could move around to the west and get unseen into a position to strike the enemy? Lacey knew someone who might be able to help. Charles Welford, who owned the nearby Catherine's Furnace Ironworks. Jackson sent Lacey and mapmaker Jedediah Hotchkiss out into the night to seek out Welford and gather what information they could from him. Well, find him they did, and with Welford's help, Hotchkiss wrote, he and Lacey, quote, ascertained the roads that led around to the enemy's rear. When Hotchkiss returned to headquarters, he found Lee and Jackson sitting by a fire on a pair of hardtack boxes. Hotchkiss pulled up another cracker box and used it as a table to spread out a map and show the generals the hidden route that Welford had told him about, a 12-mile trek that would take Confederate troops and artillery past the furnace, then south and west before turning northwards and eventually linking up with the Orange Turnpike just to the west of the Federals' dangling right flank. The exchange that followed, Hotchkiss wrote, impressed itself, quote, on my mind very forcibly. According to the mapmaker, Robert E. Lee began by saying, Well, General Jackson, what do you propose to do? I propose to go right around there. Stonewall Jackson replied, using his finger to indicate that route Hotchkiss had just traced. Lee asked, what do you propose to do it with? With my whole command, Jackson answered. What will you leave me here, Lee wanted to know. Jackson replied that Lee would have the first corps divisions of Anderson and McClaws, meaning Lee would be left with just 14,000 troops to confront Hooker while Stonewall marched off with 28,000 men. It was a huge gamble. Firelight flickered across Lee's face as he considered it. Silent moments passed. Well, Lee finally said, looking up at Jackson, Go ahead. <laughs> 